Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow John and Brandon on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Niro. Also, check out our weekly newsletter where we teach you how to be an effective operator. You can sign up by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. We are very excited to have Elliot Holland joining us for this week's podcast. Originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan, Elliot is a reformed engineer turned businessman residing in the greater Atlanta area. He attended Harvard Business School for his MBA and started Guardian Due Diligence in 2017. They help with due diligence and coaching of three types of individuals, self-funded searchers, acquisition entrepreneurs, and business buyers. They'll be covering multiple topics in relation to Guardian today, including their provided services, sourcing of clients, scaling of the business, and more. Enjoy. It's no secret that Brandon and I have cleaned up a lot of poop in our career. Unfortunately, we don't clean up crappy bookkeeping. That's where today's sponsor comes in. Apple Tree Business Services handles bookkeeping, payroll, and taxes for small businesses. Apple Tree Business Services is the go-to choice for growing service companies so they can manage cash flow, know their numbers, and save on taxes. Their U.S.-based team has taken care of small business bookkeeping and taxes since 2005. Find them online at appletreebusiness.com or email patrick at appletreebusiness.com. Welcome back to Owned and Operated. Today, I have Elliot Holland on with me. Welcome, Elliot. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We unfortunately missed each other at SM Bash, but you were down there hanging out. You probably got to meet a pretty significant portion of the people down there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had probably 10 or so clients in the room, probably another 15 folks that I had spoken to on the phone. And then I met some super cool people. I really enjoyed that and can't wait till next year. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. Well, Elliot, this is going to be fun. So you're coming on. You both started and built up your business, but you also have just some really cool stuff that just in the deal world that I'm looking forward to talking about. So how about you give us a little bit of a primer about your backstory, where you're from, what you're into now? Sure. So I'm actually a Midwest dude. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which for John being in Cleveland, that may mean he hangs up on me, but I'm going to give it a shot. A reformed engineer turned sort of business dude, went to HBS to get my MBA, got into the private equity industry, sort of formally worked at two different firms that did industrial deals with more of a strategic lens than financial engineering, somewhat smaller deals, so sort of $100 million or below. I figured out pretty soon that the name of the game in private equity was owning equity. So convinced a mentor to work with me and started two independent sponsor slash self-funded sort of business acquisition companies. During that time, spent a lot of time sort of checking out different diligence solutions for the deals that we were doing, which are really sort of under $40 million in enterprise value. And I thought that these solutions were not comprehensive enough for even what we were looking for, but even less comprehensive for people who had less sort of deal experience than I did. And so in 2017, I started Guardian Due Diligence to be the sort of diligence solutions provider that I wish I had when I was buying companies. And we tried to do away with a lot of the crap that I didn't like when I was looking for diligence solutions and to add a bit of sort of deal coaching because most of our clients are either first-time buyers or busy buyers who need help with more than just diligence. And we kind of provide those things. Yeah, that's a good background. So how long were you in the IBPE space? So six, seven years. All right. And how many deals were you a part of in that time before you broke off? Five different deals. So we bought a tow truck company, clinical trials company, a automotive parts manufacturing company. And then I was part of two sort of sales of private equity companies to, or portfolio companies to others. So Carpenter Steel and then Stamper Logistics. I mean, tow trucks are kind of interesting. Like how big was the tow truck company? Are you allowed to say anything about it? I'll say it had over a hundred trucks. So 
Oh my god, <laughs> that's a lot of drugs. <laughs> yeah, that's a big touch of shrink for me. We'll probably get into this later, but I read an article about a company like maybe a month or two ago that specialized in like their whole gig was changing titles in asset purchases when you buy like your example of a token. Because all I can think about is buying that company and changing over a hundred tow truck titles. That'd be a total nightmare. Yeah. You know, we can talk about this later, but one of the reasons why I've always liked asset heavy businesses is not because I like changing titles over, but because the financeability of hard assets, particularly ones that trades somewhat easily. And although it's a pain in the butt, you actually have like a tangible set of things you bought. So a lot of my clients currently are buying companies that have a way larger portion of goodwill because they're not fixed assets. So they kind of cuts both ways. Yeah. Yeah, it does. All right. Well, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, I would love to talk a lot about building guardian due diligence. So could you give us sort of the, it was 2017, that's five years ago. How did it start? What did it look like in that first six months? Sure. So a big part of the impetus for it was wanting more sort of agency and autonomy around my time, energy, and the ability to leverage sort of the amazing deal skills I had learned to generate value for others and make a good living for myself. So when I initially thought about it, I had done a healthcare IT startup years previous, and that was my first foray into websites and like digital marketing and whatnot. And I knew if I was going to start a business, it was going to be something that sort of leveraged those tools in an industry that has honestly been pretty terrible around leveraging sort of digital marketing means or sort of digital tools at all to push the agenda forward. So I sort of took a look at the skills I had, realized that for this sort of ever-growing entrepreneurship through acquisition, you know, SMB market, I felt it was growing at 20 to 40% just based on what I was seeing. And I thought it was a great place to provide some value. And so I think my thought was to bring to an extent the same sort of buy side M&A offerings that were available to larger deals to do it in a cost effective, no nonsense way in the smaller market. And I think the first piece of that was I think the hardest piece of doing a deal, which is due diligence and particularly financial, because a lot of people have operational expertise from whatever they're doing, but very few people have sort of very dedicated like CPA audit like skills, but they're making a huge financial investment in a very private wonky thing. And so if I could solve that for them, I knew that we could expand into other things over time or you know, I'm five years into it and we just really started this year moving into some of our more deal execution, deal coaching things. And so we've been having a lot of fun doing quality of earnings for folks. So when you started off, how many people were on the team? Was it just you doing quality of earnings and then you slowly added or did you have a couple of people starting off? So it was me and two accountants I had relationships with that were working with me. So like day one, you had three people. Now, the two folks were part-time contractors at that point, so it wasn't like a full-time employees. I didn't make that mistake. I wasn't (laughs) that rich or willing to pay salaries ahead of revenue, but you can't. So I'm definitely smart and I've had to do my own QOEs on my own deals, but in terms of like true transaction, CPA, CFA, accounting skills, there are a piece of that that's better off done by somebody who's done that for 15, 20 years, just like I've done deals. I always knew that for me, it was I had checked enough accountants on deals where I worked, where they either made mistakes or presented things inaccurately that I could do that. But I needed someone to do the core work to have the ability to kind of start from here's the base level of analysis. And now let's massage it. So we started off from there. Now I have a team of 20 accountants that work for me and four marketing folks. So we've expanded quite quickly since then and, you know, just more folks that deliver more value to clients. When I think of 20 service providers, I think of, I'm just comparing it to plumbers or HVC, something like that. So how is the organization split out? Like we do it by teams, their service, install, whatever. How's your split out? So there are deal teams that 
work together on every deal. So some deal teams are three, four or five folks, depending, and they've worked together for years. And so they're both stacked from experience level so that somebody can sort of handle the full gamut of diligence work. And then also they have familiarity with each other. So they know how to sort of manage internal separation of work and whatnot. I manage the client relationship. So the clients speak to me. They sometimes speak to the team members, but most often it's me. And then the marketing folks, I kind of have a chief marketing person and then two others that sit beneath him to sort of deliver the vision in that organization. So we don't have the true kind of delivery and service because so much of the work is really getting the work done. And to an extent, I sort of manage the service of clients because we oftentimes speak weeks and months after sort of the quality of earnings is delivered, just helping them with, you know, ad hoc things that come up. Like what? Like 11th hour, the seller wants to keep working capital. Elliot, what should I do? Or, you know, you finish your quality of earnings in December. It's now March. We got February and January financials. They're down, you know, 20% revenue, 10% EBITDA. I don't think I can adjust the price. What are some ideas on how to adjust the structure? Or what other stuff comes up? I had one client that said, hey, look, I've gotten through the SBA process, but the forecast model I did for them was just like Fisher Price, my first forecast model. <laughs> now it's my money, my first. That is a real tool. You know, I, I got my, <laughs> my three-year-old that toy. <laughs> exactly. Because exactly. you're smart and you want your three-year-old to be rich. <laughs> but he's like, hey, can we actually go through the process of doing a forecast model the way you would do it so that I'm actually more comfortable that the numbers are accurate? And then once I buy this thing, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it. Like what do private equity folks do in terms of post-close operational planning. So we went through the 100-day planning process. So this is a lot of like new buyers is what this sounds like. Maybe probably first deal. So I'd say 80% of my clients, but a little bit less in terms of the work. So like 65 to 75% of the work comes from first-time buyers, 80% of the clients, meaning some of my clients that do higher volume have done deals before. But a lot of this is first-time buyers. A lot of this is SBA. You know, our average deal size is probably two to $3 million, which surprises people sometimes. We actually want it to be that size. We do deals up to $100 million. Like I have a $70 million deal I'm working on now, but where our bread and butter is sort of first-time buyer, SBA, personal guarantees, people who are both looking to get diligence, but also to feel comfortable using disparate unknown pieces of data to make a very heavy decision. Yeah. All right. So I want to go back to the beginning again here. So in five years, you have around 30 people in the organization total, like managers and everything. So how did you start sourcing clients? Like, how did you scale it? You know, initially it was just shotgun approach. I tried everything sort of like, I could call it like the book traction, which is a cool way mm -hmm. of saying I just tried stuff. <laughs> the first year was just friends of friends and LinkedIn posts, right? I had a huge LinkedIn following. And so that plus some website stuff. So because I knew websites a little bit, I had a sample quality of earnings report from the beginning. I knew that would help get people to the site over time. I also knew that one of the most frustrating things about finding a diligence provider is how funny acting they can be around providing a sample. So you want them to protect your $4 million investment, but they don't want to send you a sample from four years ago that actually shows you that they can actually do the work. And that used to frustrate the bejesus out of me. So I had a client from Amsterdam that was buying a company an hour north of Atlanta the first year that found my sample report, downloaded it and wanted some help. And then I had like a family office out of Connecticut kind of do the same thing. When I really started moving a bit faster, John was like year two and year three, where I blew through a bunch of Google ads money, just trying stuff. And the Google ads ended up bringing in more money than I spent. But I thought with all the data that Google collects, I'd be able to understand kind of what worked and what didn't. And when I got in there, neither I nor the folks I found that knew it better than me could figure it out. And so I ended up getting smarter about Google ads over time and then actually realized that Google ads, the stuff coming in was too disconnected from what I put out for me to really know 
what stuff works. So for instance, you put an ad out for due diligence services, right? And somebody clicks it because they're two months into a search and they're looking for their diligence provider to put on their team. But that person doesn't buy anything for six or nine months. And when they come back, they don't say, hey, Elliot, it was that ad nine months ago Mm -hmm. that brought me in. And at that point, I didn't have any sort of inbound software managing sort of leads. So I didn't have a great way to tell it. And so what I ended up doing was sort of switching focus to more managing the list of people who had downloaded the report and sending good content to them. And how else did I grow? Leveraging partnerships. So a lot of times when somebody had a great experience with our first quality of earnings, if they were part of a group, you know, some of the search fund aggregators or some of the sort of educational classes in our industry, those folks would start referring people in and outside of their sort of immediate network. So it kind of started growing from there. And at some point you added four marketing people. Like what do four marketing people do all day? (laughs) Well, you know, and I can go all day on this, but marketing... Let's go all day. I'm fascinated. <laughs> so as an engineering nerd, what I love is numbers and statistics. So some people probably clicked off the interview already, but I'll try to make it interesting. So I blew marketing off when I was in business school. I thought it was a waste. I was going to be a finance dude. And now like a lot of what I do is marketing. So marketing is actually understanding who your target customer is, which isn't Whoever you think it is at first, it ain't that. I'll tell you, I know that for certain. So you make a hypothesis of who you think your number one client is, and then you start speaking and talking to them. And then you realize that they don't actually speak in the language you thought they spoke in. And they're not exactly the type of person that you thought they were. And then you refine over time. And then to get to the people who you need to speak to once you figure out what their sort of persona is, now you have to figure out, well, are they on Twitter, LinkedIn, search funder, right? Do they have a LOI? Do they not? Do they love big CPA firms because of the brand name or do they want like scrappy assassins that are going to get the work done in a cost-effective way? And once you start like bifurcating all those kind of things, then you kind of figure out, well, what kind of content do I need to put out to this group? to let them know kind of who I am, but also who my services are and all that kind of stuff. So that's content marketing. So I have a content person that does a lot of the war stories, write-ups and blog posts and white papers and that kind of thing. As you get more into it earlier, I said I did a bunch of Google ad stuff, but I had a hard time figuring out how to connect the dollars going out with the dollars coming back in. Well, that's a whole infrastructure of like active campaign, which is similar to HubSpot understanding different points of people in your funnel, like top of funnel is they heard guardian and want to know what's going on. Bottom of funnel is they had an LOI sign yesterday and need to choose a diligence provider this week. So where are they? So one person does a lot of integration stuff between like my website, my active campaign, my CRM and other sort of systems in my ecosystem. And then another person does sort of like the graphics and the video and sort of other multimedia things that sort of augment the rest of that stuff. And then I have a senior person that kind of helps me think of like, here's the vision for what I want to do in 2022 for Guardian. How do you parse that out to the different pieces, content, integration, and like your systems, and then helping manage the process of getting that stuff out? Yes, there's a lot going on there. Like, can you walk me through the journey of what you originally thought your first, like, what was the customer you thought it was and what did it end up being? Yeah. So I thought it was a second generation wealthy family member who was looking to buy companies whose parents were in real estate, probably. Because I just knew a lot of those guys that wanted to go buy companies. Yeah. That's a really specific. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it is. Although being a Harvard Business School grad and some of the social groups I'm in, I probably know more than most other people. But what ended up happening is that these folks are taking over the wealth in their family. A lot of them don't have the training that a lot of folks that I know that are from like a deal like background have. And so I thought my relationships with those folks and sort of the use case and what they needed was sort of match. But what I realized was that the buying decision-making unit in those systems was too complex for me to get through. I think had I been 60 and been talking to their parents, I probably could have done more. 
this was a who controls the purse strings problem. Yeah, I think it was that. It was also like some of the younger guys had control of the purse strings, but they didn't necessarily have control of the choice of advisors. So even if their parents sort of enabled them to make choices with finite pieces of capital, they still wanted their advisors checking them, right? So it was going to be another probably 10, 20 years before that market opened up. I then thought I was marketing to like every person buying a company under 10 million bucks, you know, call them search funders, call them ETA, call them, you know, whoever, business buyers, you know, somebody sitting in Indianapolis wants to go buy a company. I quickly realized that there's people that are in different phases of the process and not everybody at phase three started at phase one and everybody from phase one makes it to phase three. So I kind of realized there are some folks who are like running away from a job or a situation and like, instead of their job, they're like, Oh, I'm going to go buy a company. Right. Which is an amazing thing to consider, but it takes way more work than that. So a lot of those folks phase out. Some folks sort of are mid career. They may have a nice like nest egg. Maybe they can get a six month sabbatical from their job or negotiate, you know, six months of nights and weekends from their wives. But that's not really enough time for most people to get a deal done. So they fizzle out. And I sort of realized that my core target market were people who have sort of demonstrated an ability to make decisions with money that required them to make investments up front. So like had a real estate portfolio, had done research on a public market portfolio, or had come from like a deal family were further down the funnel. So they had already submitted a couple of letters of intent. So they weren't kind of fresh. And then I realized that I did way better with self-funded searchers than funded for a lot of reasons. And that was when really like things really started growing then. Because once again, like you niche down and now all my communication are specifically to that person. I'm not talking to funded searchers. I mean, I had a couple of funded searchers that use my service last year. I'm not saying that we don't. I'm just saying my target market where I get most of my love is a self-funded first-time buyer. This is fascinating. And I want to jump back like two minutes just because I'm interested. Sure. So I didn't go to Harvard Business School. <laughs> so I'm fascinated about you've got this archetype in your mind and I just want to understand it a little bit more because it's interesting. So you mentioned deal family. You mentioned this second generation real estate family, people bringing on their own advisors or, or not being able to bring on their own advisors. So for the people out there, this is going to take like a family business turn, but for the people out there that they're the first generation, they're prepping, they're thinking about their second generation, like what are their kids going to do? It sounds like these kids were hamstrung in a way that might not have been beneficial. Like, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think the complexity of it, it turned into enterprise sales, John, is I think probably the, the nearest comparable. So the kids weren't the ones that were hamstrung, their parents were. Because the parents were like transitioning ownership of pretty big pieces of assets to a younger generation that may or may not have worked as hard as the first generation or previous generations to make it. Typically, the newer generation was looking to expand the investment thesis into deals. So it wasn't like it was like a business buying company where the next generation is now buying companies as well. It were a lot of real estate companies or debt companies like hard money or whatnot that now wanted to get into business acquisition and were sort of pushing their parents to do it. And a lot of people who thought deals were sexy and had the ability to kind of sit on the sideline for a long time and wait for the right stuff, needed a lot of education. But because their family had assets, they I, I found over time that their willingness to either spend large amounts of money, long amounts of time in education, or allowing sort of smaller deals to get done without a lot of clarity they had a capacity to do that rather than want to bring somebody on to help coach. And so there were just a lot of different things that ended up causing challenges. So, Yeah, that's really interesting. You could probably do a whole episode. There is the Business of Family podcast that probably talks exactly about this. <laughs> but yeah, the family dynamics is interesting. All right. So you, you tried targeting those folks. You ended up with sort of self-funded searchers doing 2 to $3 million deals. 
and I remember you said how many did repeats? You said 60 or 70% of your current clients were first-time buyers? Yeah. So like the other, you know, 30, 40% are repeats. Either they've done deals themselves or now that I've worked with their group, I wouldn't really consider them first-time buyers, even if the person who I'm working with in the group is. Yeah. So what happens next? Like when I think about businesses that the CEO is sort of the main hunter to bring in business, how do you grow past you being the main hunter to bring in business? Sure. So I think over time, it turns into like an agency model. So for instance, let's think about like a small regional CPA firm, right? It's Johnson and Wales on the sign, right? But like, you don't talk to Johnson or Wales. You talk to the other people that have been empowered to either do business development or sometimes the heads of those industry or functional groups are now managing their own businesses under somebody else's title, right? And so you're getting a Johnson Wales product with that quality standard, those expectations, but you're talking to Steve and Johnny and Bill, right? And so I think over time, particularly given the sort of marketing and particularly digital marketing, beginning of funnel stuff. And as I get better at that and continue to invest in it, I'm already getting more leads than I can handle sometimes, right? So if I had more folks that could take someone from sort of lead to product completion that I could sort of coach them on the critical milestones and points where they needed to be particularly thoughtful. I think it could expand that way. I've actually found finding the accountants, I'm not going to say it's easy, but I think if I get in a room of like 10 accountants, I can tell you who the top three are pretty quick. When it comes to transactions and small transactions with messy financials, I can tell who those folks are pretty quick. And I think this job is particularly interesting because it kind of gives you all the sexiness of deal life without the risk and without the big company stuff. So a lot of my accountants really enjoy the fact that, you know, they're able to really talk about not just like trailing 12 month EBITDA, but like why you should pay more for a diversified customer base versus not like some of that stuff that's really pretty more interesting. And then continue scaling. Like I mentioned, I recently launched some products that are like QOE plus and a done for you diligent service. So I think that, you know, this year, maybe 20 to 30% of my revenue will come from those over time. It'll be even greater. And then I could see like a educational product coming down the line too, particularly not for my core customer now, which I think I have sort of the best product suite for them. But I think there's a segment, and I saw it at SM Bash. Like a lot of guys are still working full-time jobs and gals are working still like full-time jobs, making, you know, 200, 300,000 bucks, whatever it is, want to go buy a company, but are sort of can't figure out how to go from a big salary to zero long enough to have the expectation they can get a deal done, don't want to go the funded route for whatever reason, and need sort of a roadmap to go from one to the other. And I did that for six or seven years. So while I was doing my independent stuff, John, I was actually bootstrapping working a full-time job. So I know that world well too. How many clients are asking for that exact path that you just described? I had probably 10 folks. They weren't clients. I think I told you at one point, I thought that any buyer at any phase right. that wanted to do something under 10 million bucks was my client base. I was doing like weekly office hours talking to people. And I'd say over half of the weekly office hours folks were in that bucket. So out of 50 or 60 people that went to the office hours over a quarter, probably at least 20 or 30 of them kind of fit that bill. Is that like Zoom office hours or literal you're in an office? Zoom office. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah, I should have cracked I'm like, beer. how many people drove to your office, man? <laughs> I see an opportunity in the future to do like pop into Cleveland pop into Tampa, pop into Phoenix and do stuff on site now that the world's open up again, but it was virtual. Some of you may have been in like Live Oak, they host office hours, you know, something similar to that. I think even Walker Dible started doing them last year too. Oh yeah, that's cool. All right, let's dive into the due diligence side specifically. I'm interested in this. I've never used a due diligence service. We do all of our stuff captive because we know the industry sure. pretty well. So walk me through what you guys usually do for this typical client that you've laid out. Sure. So as a former engineer, I don't like overcomplicating any of this stuff. So I'm going to speak sort of at a higher level, but try to keep it so anybody can understand. Diligence to me is just triangulating 
different data sets that mention the same information so that you're pretty clear that after the second or third document that has the same information on it built up a different way, you can have some confidence that the numbers are triangulating on the same number or different numbers. If it's the same, then you're kind of solid. If it's different, then you should probably dig in more to get more data. So what the heck am I talking about in reality? So let's start with like revenue, right? So revenue for a company is whatever QuickBooks says. That's one way to look at it. But you also tell the IRS what your revenue is. So I can look at taxes and see it. But it's also all the deposits in your business bank account. So we take a look at those three documents to figure out what revenue is. Cost. So cost is on QuickBooks. Cost is on your taxes. And then cost is all of the withdrawals from the bank account, net transfers, including credit cards, and a couple other things you have to sort of net in and out. So now you're looking at profit from very different angles. Assets are the same way, right? So what we end up doing is sort of looking at a wide range of different data sets to triangulate on the most important numbers to a buyer from two or three different lenses. And then we know the variability in each data set based on $2 million transactions, not $200 million transactions, but $2 million transactions to be able to tell you. So I'll give you an example, John. So all the time I get a client who will say, hey, you know, here's the financials from QuickBooks, monthlies. They're saying, you know, $700,000 of SDE, you know, is this enough to do a QOE? And I'm like, have you ever done QuickBooks yourself? No, no, no. I'm like, well, let me just tell you, you don't want me in QuickBooks trying to tell you that there's $700,000 of SDE in a business, right? You want to go to the bank because we probably both have great relationships with our bankers, John, but if we wanted to walk in with a hundred bucks, but say, hey, go tell Sally that it's 500 bucks, they're not going to do that for us. So I try to remind clients oftentimes that you need to understand the variability and the conservatism of the data set, which you can almost always know is the taxes are going to be the lower bound of profit. Nobody wants to overpay taxes. And the financials are typically going to be the over the higher bound of profit. So you don't want to believe those. The bank statements end up tying a lot of that together. How far do you go back? At least three years. Sometimes there's compelling reasons to go five. Either the client wants it or the bigger the variability in profit over the years, the longer you want to go back. Also, people think about valuation differently. So a lot of private equity buyers care most about trailing 12-month EBITDA, but want to look back five years for just security. A lot of my clients look at three-year averages, which give you a pretty good view. So three to five years. So those quality of earnings, that's most of what you do. What are the other services you guys are providing? So we have... Right now, it's really QOE and then two upgraded quality of earnings and then sort of half of a quality of earnings. So to me, a proof of cash is about half of a quality of earnings as it pertains to work and cost. So proof of cash is just recreating the financial statements out of the bank statements. And the reason why I just said you can't walk into a bank with 100 bucks, but tell them to tell your diligence person it's 500. So the conservatism there is to your benefit. Then the QOE Plus, which helps folks with the forecast model for the SBA, the business plan for the SBA, a industry analysis, and help them answer the question, can they run the business without the seller that has both quantitative and qualitative components? And then we have a done-for-you quality of earnings or done-for-you due diligence package where some of our clients are either too busy, they already run a portfolio of companies, or they're confident that diligence will get done by a qualified provider, but they don't know enough to really be helpful to the process. So they'll pay us to do the whole diligence process. And then we'll check in with them, you know, once or twice a week to give them updates. And then we'll spend a day or two at the end to kind of walk through the full report and everything that they need to know to make a decision. So it's really heavily based on quality of earnings. And then the next couple of steps that people need to make decisions because what we found for first-time buyers and for small business acquirers across the board, I don't think the question they want answered is what's the trillion 12-month EBITDA. I think what they want to know is, is the business worth what you're paying for it? And all those things that are added on to the premium services help people answer those questions. At what point in the process does somebody call you? There's typically two main points where people meet me for the first time. Either 
when they're starting off their search process and somebody told them they should go find a diligence provider, so way early. And I love that because it helps both them and me know if they're a good match, right? And I, I try not to blow smoke because I get a lot of referrals from folks that I send business to and we're not the right tool for everybody. The more often time is sort of a week before they send a letter of intent or sort of the week of or right after. So that letter of intent time frame is probably the most popular time that people engage with me heavily. But I would say half of those folks had already met me somewhere else before. So you guys talked about what you do do. Maybe it would be good to talk for a second about what you don't do, like what is safe to not expect from Guardian. Sure. So we don't do deal sourcing. We'll help you evaluate deals that you find. You can go to offer from Elliot.com and we offer a free letter of intent and valuation review. So we'll review what you find. We won't go search stuff for you. We don't do a lot of, not yet, but we may in the future, we don't do deal coaching. So like, hey, Elliot, I just started. I don't want to spend a year getting smart. Can you kind of coach me on how to do a deal? And I'll do a quality earnings with you, but can you just kind of coach me on what's up or can you walk me through the first process so I can kick you out of the second one for a fee? We don't do that. Although for our clients, we'll help them through the process. So that's kind of where the line is. We'll do a lot of stuff for our clients. We don't do like audits. So sometimes we've had clients that get into a diligence process and the numbers are so mucked up that they need an actual audit. We don't do audits and we don't have a full service accounting firm. So we're not going to do your ongoing accounting stuff once you buy the company. We're not going to be like counting inventory as part of the diligence process. We have partners to do those things, but we're, as it stands right now, sort of a quality of earnings centric diligence firm that has some components to sort of help first-time buyers get deals done. I'm definitely into how niche it is. You guys just do what you're doing and like, that's it. I love it too, because it's easy to remember, you know, like once you hear it, it's not like, well, the dude does a bunch of not quality of earnings, man. Like I'm king of QOE on Twitter. It's very simple what I do in terms of remembering it. And I think that was also something that helped me grow the business. And I listen to a lot of marketing podcasts and you, some people who listen to this may have read like the 22 immutable laws of marketing, but a lot of marketing languages around there's riches and niches, but also be comfortable speaking about the specificity of what you do, even if it's more specific than stuff that you could do and actually do. But when you speak specifically to a finite set of people, people who realize that if you can do that, you can do what they need will still come. And so mm-hmm. people think, oh my gosh, I excluded funded searchers out of, why don't you do funded? Well, we do. You know, We just don't spend the majority of our time talking to those folks. Yeah. One thing is diligence can be boring numbers, accounting, blah, right? But when you're doing a small business transaction, I'm really talking about a deal under 5 million bucks. It's like junkyard dog street, the mix of like negotiation, knowing how to call BS without upsetting people, being confident and even sometimes harsh in some areas and being very soft and understanding in others. It's a real like gladiator type scenario, right? Where you can really, if you get into it, have a lot of fun. And the reason I say that is because a lot of people get like scared or like turned off around diligence or, or even sometimes they want to just send it to a guy who does it and they don't touch it. And it's like, you get some thumbs up or thumbs down in a report. And I think, None of those are ideal scenarios. I think the ideal scenario is realizing that you're part like Sherlock Holmes, like crime detective. You're part like people manager and trust builder. You're part like Main Street investment banker, which is very different than Wall Street investment banker. Like, is it three times, four times or five times? Like, you need to sort of understand that and why. You're part holder of patience your part holder of impatience, depending on the situation. And so we end up having a lot of fun with our clients because a lot of this stuff, although they may not speak the language of like transaction, accounting, quality of earnings, we talk in a lot of similes and analogies, right? So unfortunately, a lot of them are sports and a lot of them are dating. You know, I I keep it PG-13 most times, 
but I try to give it to our clients in a way where it's like, oh, I don't understand why the $200,000 employment contract on a $4 million deal won't keep the seller motivated to help you on a deal if things get rough. But you'll understand it in other areas, right? Where, you know, that $5,000 or $50,000 fine on that $10 million sports contract, it's great for ESPN, but it doesn't deter any activity. So we try to give it to folks in ways that they can actually understand it in other areas so that they can be more impactful and better in their deals. So I think most of our clients, if you ask them, were far better deal folks when they finished with us than they would have been had they just done a traditional like strict quality earnings from a CPA firm. Yeah, that's pretty good. Could you give us a war story? Yeah. I'm thinking of one that I haven't given as often. So I was looking at buying a roll-off container company back when I was doing deals. And it was partially owned by an entrepreneur and partially owned by like a wealthy family that had invested in them. And roll-off containers, if you're in a construction-heavy place and time, it's like a distribution business, like reverse distribution, right? Instead of taking it out, you're bringing it back in. So it should be like 10, 15% margins. But these things can get to be like 25, 30% margins in some places because you can really charge for good service. Straight business. The story we were told is that they had grown the business from zero to enough and they wanted to sort of have an exit. And this was a good time to do it. And then we got probably 60 days into a 90 days process. And, you know, we went out to go visit with the seller and we're on a call and something was said between the entrepreneur and the wealthy family. And my partner and I were like, hold on. They don't like each other which you might think is just a throwaway comment, but like when people who are about to sell like a $10 million asset don't like each other enough to really come at each other on a call as part of a sale, that's a certain type of dislike. And so we started peeling back and realized that it wasn't that they just wanted to exit, they were at odds. And so they needed to get away from each other. That was sort of the first revelation. But then, and this is where simple things in documents don't make sense until you can understand why they may. And that's how you get better with diligence over time. So like on the balance sheet, what we saw is a bunch of like $80,000, $120,000 loans from the wealthy family to the entrepreneur, which everybody can sort of understand why you need like a hundred thousand dollar loan. But when you're pulling $800,000 out of a business annually, and you live up in the Pacific Northwest, nowhere near a city that's in the top 25 in the nation, what the heck would you need $100,000 for eight times a year? So second kind of major red flag. Then we're finishing up the purchase agreement and the seller, the entrepreneur just goes dark for like two weeks. Like we were had like last two negotiations on the purchase agreement. Seller goes dark. We can't get him at his house, his cell phone, office, nothing. And so in that instance, that part of the deal, everybody's making up stories on why the broker's telling you why it's reasonable because they want to keep the deal. You're saying why it's crazy as heck because you are you spent too much money to think that a rational person would do this. And I can't tell you for sure because I didn't see the guy doing any drugs, but I think he had a habit. So now the entrepreneur who we thought was trying to get away from a crazy wealthy family was really probably an addicted person that was functional enough to run a business. The entrepreneur and the family were at odds. And people are still like, well, is the deal good? Well, think about buying a business from a husband and wife that are in divorce court. It actually doesn't matter what the business is. There's going to be so much destruction and erosion of value that there's nothing to get done. So that deal didn't get done. And then crazy enough, three or four years later, my business partner at the time got a call because the business was in bankruptcy and they were going to the last people to put an offer on it. So, you know war story because we wasted a lot of time and energy on that deal. But, you know, the upside of war stories is you have more guards to keep you out of that situation the next time. I've always wondered, I'm wondering, cause I'm not very good at this. When we find a new weird thing, cause every company has a new weird thing. So we've done, we've, we've done seven deals and each one you mentally log. Okay. <laughs> that was a thing. I'm going to remember that on the next one. We have not been very good at recording our war stories in a way that can sort of transcend just me. Got it. 
right? Like we're not great at adding it to due diligence checklist. Like that, that relational thing, that's interesting. And like that's obviously – that would be to me a box to check either written or mentally in the future. So how do people continue to build that list? I've seen it done both in private equity firms and I've seen it done in firms that I ran myself. And the best way that I can tell you to do it without spending a lot of time is every quarter, me and my former business partner would have postmortems on all the deals that we submitted LOIs on. And we go through what worked and what didn't work. And on deals that we got signed letters of intent and really went deep in diligence on, the stuff that didn't work, if we didn't close it, was pretty long, right? And then we do the same thing at the end of the year. And it might just be an hour. Some of those meetings were four hours. But at the end of the year, we'd have like two or three areas of stuff that we did poorly on more than one deal. Or something that, you know, the year before was sort of a, oh, that's an inconvenience. You know, don't put a rule around it, but like, just be kind of sniffing for it. And then the second time it happens, you're like, no, hard and fast rule. And so each year you should be adding to your diligence list. So like for those who are like taking the sample from like Stanford or the Harvard Business School or wherever, you should know that like whatever your standard list is, each deal or each year should have another thing or two. Whether you did the deal and you should have looked at something else or you didn't do it and here's some new things you should look at. I think that's the best way to do it. And then I think the new diligence items over time can also fall off the list. So certain things are sort of typical for certain like market cycles or maybe even are particular for certain sizes. And as you go up size or in a different market cycle, they may not be important anymore. Also, some things in diligence are hard to check, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have them on your list. You know, like how much time does the seller spend in the business? You know, like you can ask that question. You can spend some time checking it out, but you'll never know over like 12 months how much time was the average seller spending in a business. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have it on your list. There's been interesting like threads coming out on that. I don't remember the guy's name, but he's a broker down in Texas and it was the social media check is what he used for that. So like you get on the owner's social media, you see how many vacations they go on a year. Do they own a boat in the garage? Like that type of thing. Yes. And I was like, yes. oh, okay, that's, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty Sherlock Holmes. That's pretty good. And a lot of the stuff on the more complicated questions have more Sherlock Holmes type answers. I mean, I think that's why, you know, given starting in deals that are way bigger that make, you know, newspapers. Now I'm more excited about these smaller deals because Almost everything has a component of like Sherlock Holmes or like, for instance, I was in the process of buying a ready mix concrete business. Right. And if you read up on ready mix or maybe you're in real estate, and you already knew this, but like I'm sitting in downtown Atlanta right now. The downtown Atlanta price versus the price 20 minutes in any direction could like change by, you know, 20 bucks per unit. Right. And when you're getting, you know, hundreds of units, that's a really big amount. And then the price to somebody charges can be hugely competitive because all your competitors are within like 20 or 30 minutes. Well, one way is to try to go get like an industry report from some, you know, investment banker locally, right? Another thing is just go drive to five ready mixed concrete facilities, see what their prices or call five, right? So sometimes like you got to get your behind out of the spreadsheet and out from behind the computer and actually go do some work. You know, some of the diligent stuff is do you make time to go spend you know, two to four hours with key employees, not asking them about their relationship to the business, but their relationship to the owner. Yeah. So there's, there's stuff that you can do as a human, as a smart human that can outpace what you can do in a spreadsheet or a Word document or PowerPoint. Do you find you're working with a lot of people who avoid that? Most of the small business owners that I know buying in that range are scrappy. Like I feel scrappy the way we do deals. That is a great question. I think it's a mixed bag, if I'm honest. I present scrappy ways to all my clients of getting some of those more qualitative questions answered. But sometimes there's just no time for it. And I can almost understand the person that doesn't have time but likes the deal not doing it. I'm not agreeing with it. But if there's no time to drive to Jacksonville from Atlanta because the deal is closing tomorrow. I can understand why you wouldn't want to spend a lot of time doing it. I'd say you can delay the deal a couple of days if it's mission critical. Half of the clients I have are like 
incredibly scrappy and whether it's through me or through themselves, they're doing a lot of those checks and a lot of that work behind the scenes, or they're asking questions like, well, how do I get a view on the HVAC industry in Georgia and Florida, right? Nobody's that specific, but that's what I need to know. And then we can talk through ways that you can sort of get anecdotal information about that without spending another 20 grand. Yeah, that was great. What's your single biggest challenge right now? I knew you were going to ask this and I did not. You knew, you knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. My biggest challenge now is because I know the deal landscape process and the players, the brokers, the sellers, the lawyers, the industry, the insurance folks. And like, I'm pretty dialed into their personas and all the challenges that they create in processes, particularly first time buyers. One of my biggest challenges currently is how do I communicate that to a first time buyer that doesn't understand the process well enough to know where the landmines are? And then how do I do it without sounding like a person who's overcomplicating something for my own benefit when sometimes those things aren't going to come up, right? And so there's always going to be the ability for somebody on Twitter to say, that didn't come up on my deal, Holland. Shut up, (laughs) right? But you know, over like, you know, hundreds of deal processes over a long period of time, the likelihood that it hits everyone is pretty high. So my biggest challenge now is being able to communicate the difficulty of the deal process in a way that's comprehensible by a first-time buyer, but also doesn't scare them away from a decision that probably makes a lot of sense, even if they don't like cover off every single thing. So it's like a messaging challenge that I have right now to try to get people to understand better some of the hazards that they walk into when they're kind of half doing diligence. Cause that's what I run into this past year is that I think a lot of my clients could have done better deep. They've been more dialed in. Yeah. That's a good challenge. I appreciate you coming onto the show today. This was pretty cool. I feel like I learned a lot. I got to call you for the next time we do due diligence. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Sure. So a couple places. My website is Guardian Due Diligence. If you type it into Google and you're even close, it'll come to the website. You can find me on Search Funder or LinkedIn, Elliot with two L's and two T's. So you type that in, you find me. I'm pretty responsive in those places. And then all the time I'm offering a free letter of intent review and company valuation review. So you can just go to offerfromelliot.com. And you can set up a time to do like a letter of intent review, company valuation review. A lot of folks kind of struggle with this whole market multiple thing. How do I work this thing? I'd love to talk about that. Awesome. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, John. I really enjoyed it.